Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 24 of Jointly Venturing, Let's Talk World Citizenship. And today we have a very special guest with us, um, speaking to us from Davao, city in the Philippines. And we're going to be talking with the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the rights of internally displaced persons, uh, Cecilia Jimenez Damari, in a few moments, about her role on behalf of the United Nations to protect the rights of everyone everywhere who's displaced but not able or not wishing to leave the borders of their own country. So if you just think for a moment, wherever you may be listening to this podcast, about the place that you call home, about the place where you're probably sitting right now, and how important that place is to you and your family and your history, your ancestors maybe, and what that house and what that home gives you in terms of being able to live a full life in the full enjoyment of the human rights which are owed to all of us, and ultimately how sacred that home is for you. And then imagine circumstances beyond your control. Maybe it's an army. Maybe it's some rogue elements that use violence. Or maybe it's just a natural disaster. But you're no longer able to stay in that home and you have to move somewhere else inside your own country. There are literally tens of millions of people who are in that situation right now, probably more than ever before. Uh, Across the world, UNHCR estimates that there's about 71 or 72 million displaced people, refugees and internally displaced people together. And of those, um, probably half or more, maybe two-thirds, are internally displaced persons. And about 20 years ago, the United Nations started taking this issue more seriously than ever before, and began a process of appointing special rapporteurs, individual people, independent experts, to look into this question and to advocate on behalf of these extremely vulnerable people across the world. So today we have with us the current United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Internally Displaced People, Cecilia Jimenez Damari, speaking to us from Davao City, in the Philippines. So, Cecilia, hello there. How are you? Good morning, Scott. I'm very well. Thank you very much for this opportunity to speak to you and your ocean. It's great to have you today. And so maybe just let's just jump straight into it. So you've been Special Rapporteur since 2016. Um, you'll probably have a six-year term like most Special Rapporteurs. And you've been in a number of what would easily be called hot spots around the world. Um, you've, in the last few years, been in Libya, you've been in Niger, El Salvador, Iraq, a number of other places. So what are some of your enduring impressions of your work as Special Rapporteur? And, and um, perhaps just share with listeners what life is like um, as a Special Rapporteur fighting for the rights of these extremely vulnerable people. Thanks, Scott. Those are big questions and many questions in one go. I'm very pleased that um, to inform you that I have actually renewed my term and from my appointment from September 2016, which actually started in November 2016, my term will be until October 2020. 
And uh, in these um, years that I have been the UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Internally Displaced Persons, I have been very privileged and honored to meet many internally displaced persons from many of those countries, from those countries you have mentioned, and others as well. And I have been very impressed by their resilience and by their courage. And these have been giving me really enormous inspiration to continue the work that I do. In many of these countries, internally displaced persons are really struggling to attain and guarantee their own human rights as citizens of those countries and the citizens of the world. We also know, as you have very rightly um, described, that they are not at home. In fact, during the pandemic of the COVID-19, I issued a press, uh, press statement and a video saying that these people are not at home and we should give some special attention to them because of the circumstances that they find themselves in. Mm-hmm. Imagine, indeed, being away from your home because of conflict, violence, human rights violations, natural hazards, even development projects, and that you have no choice but to leave your home. And in the midst and in the process of this this internal displacement, you actually even uh, experience other human rights violations. Some of them are gender-based violence. Some of them are food security problems, no education for the children, health problems, etc., etc. In other words, the bottom line of all the situations I have found in my field visits and in my discussions with internally displaced persons themselves, as well as the governments who have actually taken these into consideration, is that internal displacement may even exacerbate already existing vulnerabilities that they have because of human rights violations. So as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Internally Displaced Persons, my main task really is to call attention to their situation. There are, as you said, millions of internally displaced persons around the world. The latest figures that have been revealed to us, disclosed to us by the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center is that there at least 50 million IDPs have been displaced at the end, towards the end of 2019, only because of conflict and violence. And we are not even talking about natural hazards, the natural disasters, which could be sudden, sudden hazards like storms and typhoons, Etc. Or it could also be because of slow onset disasters like desertification, um, rising sea levels, and that sort. And we're not even talking about the millions uncounted other IDPs who have been displaced because of development projects. It is really for me, as the UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Internally Displaced Persons, really frustrating to some extent, Scott, that there is not enough attention at the international level, and as well as by some of the governments who host these IDPs, on the plight of, 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 of these vulnerable people. 
and it is my task to bring attention to them. Right. Well, I mean, you're doing an incredibly important job and, and working in countries where life is not always easy. Um, I wonder if there's any, you know, all of this, all of us who have worked all around the world in difficult spots, you know, there's always these moments in time that you remember and that stay with you for a long time or forever. And sometimes it's just a, a glance at somebody and there, or there's some sort of connection or there's some story that you hear from a mother or whatever it may be um, that really sticks with you that kind of encapsulates the nature of the problem that you're looking into. And I have, you know, dozens of those from many years of work all across the world. I wonder if you have any like particularly, you know, personal moments that you remember from your country missions or your work on behalf of IDPs that really sticks with you and, and helps to explain to people why the issue of resolving internal displacement is so important. Sure. I can tell you that in my work as the special rapporteur, I always give a very special focus on the plight of internally displaced children. Mm-hmm. And these are the IDPs, you know, the children themselves, who really bring to me a very big impression. In fact, my report to the General Assembly last year, 2019, was on the human rights of internally displaced children. And here I really emphasize their right to be heard and their right to be consulted as children on what their futures will be. Why this, why, why, why this focus on, on internally displaced children? Of course, I focus on other issues as well, but children really touch my heart because they are supposed to be the future. And the majority of internal displacements around the world are what we call protracted displacements, which one study by, or by OCHA has already revealed to us that an average uh, IDP lives in protracted displacement for 20 to 25 years. That is one generation of children who were displaced as children or who were even born during displacement. And I can share with you two stories. And one story comes from an official uh, mission that I actually had, and this was my official mission in Niger. And I was interviewing the IDP youth. I always have focus group discussions with them. And there was this young man, probably around 15 years old, 16 years old, and he was telling me, we have been displaced for a long time, madam, but we need to eat, but we don't have enough to eat. Our parents, our families have already sold our pasture, our cows, and we don't have anything more to eat. And the government provides us some food, but it's not enough. And so even though there is a prohibition for these young people, for everybody, all those IDPs, to go back to the lake where they were fishing, they still go back. But I said, but isn't that dangerous? Won't you get shot? If you will not get, you may get be be shot because you may be you may be killed because you are um, 
mistaken to be members of the Boko Haram, or you may even be killed by the Boko Haram themselves, or or mistaken, you know, by them. And he said, Madam, it is better to die because of a bullet than to die of hang- hunger. Wow. That really touched me because it really showed how much people really, first of all, want to continue living. But continue living has to be in a dignified manner. And if they have to lose their lives, then so be it, because they don't want to die in indignity. Another story that I would like to share with you comes from a nine-year-old girl. And this nine-year-old girl is one of the children of alleged ISIS family. Mm -hmm. And she does not have documentation, and therefore she cannot go to school. Her family, of course, is one of the internally displaced persons um, that have fled and, and, and naturally the children are very much affected. And these children are not ISIS. Her parents may have been, but she is not. But because her parents have been ISIS and she's now an orphan, she does not have the proper documentation to go to school. And she asked me, when can I go to school? Because I'm now nine years old. I haven't stepped in a school. And she said, I have no dream because I cannot study. Mm. These are quotes, these are real interviews from children. And the last example, actually, I'll, I'll add the third. Sure. And this is from a much more happy situation, but still very, very, you know, much with predicament. And this is a story from a young girl, probably she was about five years old when I met her during my official mission, uh, mission in El Salvador. And the El Salvador government was really trying to get the kids safe and back in school, um, despite the fact that many that there are internally displaced persons in El Salvador flee from their homes because of gang violence this time. So it's a very different situation. And the young girl was telling me, my mother and father put me in this school because they told me it was a safe school. But I really don't want to leave school because there are bad people out there who might chase us away again. But it is good, she said, that I am here with other children who have fled from other bad people. And I want to stay here. And I wanted to share this story as well, because it still gives us hope that if the government and other non-governmental organizations, like the, the one that was running the school very well, and as well as the UN and international community, would actually bring their hands together and really address the situation of internally displaced persons, there can be hope. And there can be ways forward to secure the lives of these people, and particularly with regard to these children, to secure these children a promising life ahead of them. Right. Well, those are those are really moving stories and, and examples of, you know, the pure human suffering that so many people across the world um, have to endure every single day. 
And it's really something to, you know, for everybody everywhere to think about and not forget that, you know, every moment of every day, there are quite literally millions of people living in circumstances that are almost impossible to describe in words. And, you know, the vast majority of the human race has never been to a refugee camp or an IDP camp. Um, but both Cecilia and I and others who have can, you know, assure you that the conditions there, as hard as the international community may try to make them okay, um, they generally remain, uh, you know, the last resort, the last place anyone would ever want to be. Um, and most refugees, most IDPs, most places want nothing more than to go back to the homes from which they were originally displaced. And in fact, international law speaks about the right to durable solutions. And one of those durable solutions is the right to return home, the right to restitution. Um, so what's your experience with that, Cecilia? Have you, have you known many cases of IDPs that have been able to go back to where they were originally displaced from? Not very many. The countries that I go to particularly are, of course, most of the countries which require attention. And I do provide much encouragement, particularly to states who are able to really ensure the durable solutions and the conditions for which they can be attained are in place. There have, of course, been many very good uh, examples but it's the, the return is, of course, always the preferred option by the internally displaced person to return to their homes. I mean, who wouldn't want to return to their homes, right? right. Especially if, there, if those homes were homes that you particularly love and grew up in, etc. But there are, of course, other durable solutions, um, settlement options, we call them, which are, of course, to integrate where they are and naturally also to uh, settle elsewhere in the country. For return, of course, one of the most uh, successful um, uh, examples have been the one of Uganda. And uh, although I was not a special rapporteur at the time, I was working in Uganda, and I was working with um, NGOs there with regard to the internally displaced persons from Acholi tribe. And they were able to go home after the peace agreement and after peace was secured in Acholi land. And that was really a successful um, example, a successful solution. But it also brings to the fore that durable solutions, particularly return, is very much intertwined with two things. And one is securing peace. It does not mean that just mere return ends there. It is important to rebuild the life. Durable solutions means not just returning, in this case, physical return. It also means that the internally displaced persons need to have the conditions of safety and security, for example, housing, land and property, food security, justice, is, of course, very important, which is the second point that I would like to to emphasize with mm -hmm. regard to return, because justice with regard to uh, issues, because they have, they have themselves experienced human rights violations, so they need the justice also to restart their lives. So 
Return is not an end solution by itself, but it is a means towards real durable solutions that we call them. And that is for them to attain conditions where they can say, I do not have any more human rights issues that comes from the fact that I am this place. So mm -hmm. this is what it means to be having a durable solution for IDPs in return. Now, let me just go very quickly to the other settlement options um, within durable solutions, and that is local integration and settlements elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And um, these two are also very important because particularly, I have to tell you, children who have grown up in displacement situations in the villages, let's say, or even in the cities where they, which they know as displaced children, usually, I mean, most of the time, of course, they do not have any more memories of where home is. Their home is where they grew up in, right? Right. And so for children, sometimes I have uh, interviewed them and they said, but we don't know where home is. This is our home. We grew up here and this is where we want to stay, which is, of course, where it may be very different from their parents and their grandparents who want to go home to return to where they came from. So there is also this very interesting dynamics within the IDP families and IDP communities, and it's a context-by-context context, um, situation, obviously, because it has to be mediated by themselves, by the community structures within, among themselves. But local integration is also an option, and local integration we can find this in many countries where internally displaced families, both the parents and the, the children and the grandparents, of course, have opted for local integration because they cannot return. Um, probably the, the territories from which they fled from are still occupied by those forces who have chased them away for example, or they do not think it is safe enough for them to go back because where they came from, where they had fled from, they experienced discrimination and violence because of their ethnic origin or language or religion. I mean, these are causes of internal displacement. And, um, and so they may opt for local integration. However, opting for local integration, I have to emphasize, does not mean that they have given up the right to return if they wish to exercise that. Absolutely. And again, we find a lot of those um, examples, particularly in Eastern European um, territories. Um, the other one is, of course, settlement elsewhere. And here we find some of the examples coming from African countries where the IDP families have just opted on their own, not so much as a community, but to say, okay, we have fled from where we came from. We are now, we found refuge where we, we felt safe, but even here, we don't want to locally integrate. And so we want to go elsewhere in the, um, in the country. And that is also valid. The important thing among all of these different options is that this different options for internally displaced persons where they can be available and where their human rights can be assured and the conditions for that is are guaranteed by the state 
is that these are voluntary, informed, and safe choices of the internally displaced persons. They should not be imposed by the states nor by the international community. In fact, they should be given options. And this is where I would like to emphasize cost. My theme throughout my mandate, and that is very much the importance of the participation of internally displaced persons themselves in decisions that affect them. And particularly when those decisions affect their lives now and also where their lives are going. This is really important because, I mean, who wants to be told what to do? <laughs> I mean, this right. is not one. And we do should not look at internally displaced persons as merely beneficiaries or as objects that we can say, just feed them and they'll be fine. I'm sorry. But these are citizens of those countries. IDPs have political agencies by themselves. They should be exercising their human rights like the rest of the citizens of the country or the other residents of the country if they are foreigners. But it is important that their participation, IDP participation, is assured in the programming of their flight, I mean, where they're going, the, um, their lives while they are IDPs, and what durable solution they can obtain for themselves, for their families, for their communities. They should participate in those decisions. Absolutely true. Well, that was all like super valuable information for people. Now, one thing, I guess, um, as you were talking about durable solutions and other solutions to um, internal displacement, um, obviously, as you reiterated, people have to be asked and people have to express a preference for returning home before and certainly not be forced to go home in an involuntary manner. And obviously, when internal displacement comes about because of political violence or threats of violence, um, the risk of returning home in the absence of a sustainable peace agreement, etc., um, is obviously far less likely than in other circumstances. And so in that regard, it may uh, amaze listeners to learn that ever since uh, annual comparisons were started to be made, which is only 10 or 15 years old, between internal displacement caused by violence and conflict and internal displacement caused by disasters, that in every single one of those years, the number of people displaced by disasters, broadly defined, is considerably higher than the number of people displaced by conflict. And this opens up the whole question again of what about right to return in the context of disaster-based displacement? In particular, displacement caused by non-acute events. So not disaster caused by an earthquake or a typhoon or a volcano erupting, but long-term, slow-onset climate change, which is beginning to affect communities across the world. And in fact, the numbers of people who will be displaced by climate change 
will dwarf the current numbers of displaced people as conditions continue to worsen on that front. So how are you looking into the question of climate displacement these days? Thank you, Scott. This is really one of the hottest issues in town, so to speak, with regard to the topic of internal displacement and the adverse effects of climate change. And this is a reality, that the more that climate change intensifies, that those effects really impact our lives, there will be more and more internally displaced persons. In the science of climate change, we do make a difference between, as, as you have pointed out, those sudden effects and those slow onset um, hazards. And in, in fact, when it comes to the sudden storms, the typhoons, the sudden floods, earthquakes, etc., in a way, it is much easier, as you pointed out, for people to return because to rebuild their lives. The, and, and that has been the focus of many of the programs on risk reduction and management. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. on the other side of the uh, coin, and this is with regard to the slow onset uh, disasters, um, and um, we find that there is not enough attention. And in fact, my General Assembly report to uh, in New York this year 2020 will be on this topic. And I really look forward to further studying this uh, topic in order to give recommendations. But it is quite true that a lot can be done to prevent the effects of slow onset hazards. But in some cases, probably, it, unfortunately, it may even be too late. You know, Scott, you and I live in a region which is beset by these two kinds of, of um, adverse hazards, so to say, adverse effects of these natural hazards. And, uh, and with regard to slow onset, you know, the Pacific Islands, for example, has really been experiencing this and, and other countries in the world as well. In um, particularly the, the rise of, of sea level rise. And of course, in Africa, we are also seeing desertification. Mm -hmm. In the Americas, we're seeing other, you know, the drought that, that is claiming more and more of the, of, of the land. So slow onset, Natural hazards, again, is not a joke, but we don't see them immediately. But more and more, we have seen the effects on, in Africa on the pastoralist and nomad patterns, for example, that the pastoralist um, uh, territories are getting to be smaller and smaller, and they have been moved from one place to another place. We have seen in the Pacific Islands a lot of people who are now into evacuation because their islands will soon be inhabitable. I have seen in other countries as well the communities who have been forced to leave without even any government help on their own evacuation. And, and, and so this is a reality we really have to contend with. Now, it is important, of course, to realize 
that there are some things we cannot stop anymore. Um, we can mitigate the effects of them uh, because probably, I'm sorry to say, we are too late. Um, but we can still prevent some of these effects from happening. And this is, again, where it is important for the states themselves in consortium as much as possible with the international community, the civil society, the United Nations, to really address this, not merely in a scientific way, but in a way that would really emphasize the human rights of the people so that we can mitigate the effects on them as internally displaced persons. I am very pleased to say that some governments are already on this process of consulting the people what to do and what evacuation needs to be done and what they need to have for their future because obviously they cannot stay where they are and drown or be or, or die because of the lack of food. But it's still a long way, Scott, and, and, and really, we really have to get our act together here. Um, there are very different, varying, um, different uh, forecasts as to how many internally displaced persons will be. Some people even said it could be all the way up to 250 million. And, uh, and, and I cringe, personally, I cringe at this number because that means a lot of people and communities. And can you just imagine the effects, not just on the individuals, the families, the communities, but particularly also for those who are indigenous people who may lose their cultures and, uh, and their ancestral domains. So we need to get our act together on this. And science is important. But now let's use that science to feed into the, the human rights guarantees that need to be experienced and assured for the people so that the effects on them as people, they will not be IDPs, or, or if they will be IDPs, at least we mitigate the effects on them. It's still a long way. Well, absolutely. And, you know, as you know, we've worked on that particular issue all across the world. And, you know, the first thing we ever do in any of these countries is ask people if they can answer the following question. Whose government door do you knock on to get assistance for your current predicament? And almost nowhere in the world can people answer that question because the institutions are simply not in place in most countries to help people find you know, durable solutions to their own climate displacement. And if COVID-19 taught us anything, it's the utter importance of being prepared and modeling mm -hmm. what could happen. And that's what we need to do increasingly with, with climate change and climate displacement is really every country needs to carry out really detailed diagnostic work about who's most affected, where are they living now, and where could they, importantly, potentially go um, in the future. We're actually doing a project now on something called Climate Displacement Havens, um, which involves um, working with uh, host communities that want climate displaced people to come to their communities, and they want to play a sort of sanctuary role in providing an alternative to where people are living now. So we're doing that in Canada and Fiji and a range of other countries. 
And we think that holds out, you know, a fair amount of hope that it's actual people um, embracing the idea that this is a real big problem and these people need to go somewhere. And in communities that are losing populations or have difficulty finding workers, there's all sorts of other reasons why people might want people to come to their community. Um, you know, why not look at it as a way of resolving uh, climate displacement? So there's a lot of options available. You know, we, we can throw our arms up in the air and say it's too big of a problem to deal with. And in a way it is um, because, you know, the estimates that I see um, – you know, we used to use 250 million people like 10 years ago. Now, most commonly, it's half a billion. And often you hear people say even more than a billion. You know, 3.5 billion people live along the coastlines of the world, right? So it is going to be a gargantuan problem. But one, if we start tackling it now and planning appropriately, we can deal with and we can prevent the vast majority of uh, displacement cases if the right measures are taken now. But, you know, you may have heard that in neighboring uh, Indonesia, you know, they've already made the decision to relocate the entire capital city of Jakarta. And the process has begun. So what is that going to look like from an IDP perspective? And how will the rights of those people be taken seriously as they try to shift a, a town of millions upon millions of people? And that's just one. Beijing will face problems, Shanghai will face problems, Bangkok will face problems, Manila will face problems. The list goes on. You know, of really large megalopolis cities that will slowly but surely be increasingly unlivable. So that really is a big challenge. So thank you very much for focusing on it. And I really hope your your presentation at the General Assembly goes well and that the governments of the world... Um, will enable you to, to do even more to support the rights of those people. Thanks very much, Scott. This has been a wonderful opportunity to speak to you and as well, of course, to the people listening in on this. And I do really hope that with increased awareness to the plight of internally displaced persons now and those who may be in the future, we are able to not only get our act together, but to really get our act together effectively and efficiently. The best way for, for this is really to see them as people. And of course, with regard to human rights, to use the rights and the guarantees that international law provides us, it's already there, that, that we can find in the guiding principles on internal displacement. This for me, as a UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Internally Displaced Persons, is still the bedrock on which we should do our work together. So thank you very much, Scott. Well, thank you so much for being with us today from Davao City in the Philippines, Cecilia. And we, I know that the, me and everyone that's listening to this w wishes you the very best in achieving results on behalf of the millions of people who you're working on behalf of throughout the world, the, the world's IDP population. So congratulations on a great job, and we really wish you all the best. So that, you're welcome. That was episode 24. We'll be back next week with episode 25, which is going to continue a discussion on climate change, in fact, when we speak with um, one of the leading judges in the world who's written the most important judicial decisions regarding 
the rights of people who are displaced by climate change. So with that, wish everyone all the best and see you next time at Jointly Venturing Let's Talk World Citizenship. Bye for now. Thank you.